my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When you're a leader of an industry, you got to make the industry. You know, you, it's not just enough to make the company. You've got to make the industry work. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, we have a guest who brings us insights from decades of being at the forefront of change in technology and all the products and services that ride on that change. He's a mainstay of the Silicon Valley world, Ben Horowitz, the co-founder and general partner of venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Ben grew up in Berkeley, so he actually started out on the West Coast. He's described his young self as incredibly shy, but he was also incredibly smart with a strong math mind. He was a computer science guy in both the undergrad and grad world, and not surprisingly, spent his early career at tech firms like Silicon Graphics, Lotus, and then at Netscape, when Netscape changed the world. He's always loved hip-hop. He's written two brilliant books. The most recent is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. He's a coach and has helped countless entrepreneurs. And best of all, he's a really nice guy. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Bob. It's exciting to be here. And exciting to be working with you again. Exactly. It's a, we're, we're like going back in time. Yes. Before we jump into that and the other good stuff, I want to start off with exploring you in 60 seconds. Sound good? Yes. Okay, here we go. Do you prefer early rising or night owl? Well, at this stage of my life, early rising. <laughs> um, there was a time when I tried to keep jazz hours, but no longer. Berkeley or Silicon Valley? Uh, Silicon Valley. Cool DJ Red Alert or Chuck Chill Out? Cool DJ Red Alert. Beach or mountains? Uh, beach. Columbia or UCLA? UCLA. Call or text? Text. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Raiders or 49ers? Raiders. Cats or dogs? Dogs. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? <laughs> I'll say Matei Zaharias. Childhood hero? George Clinton. Favorite rapper? Nas. Secret talent. Making grits and collard greens. I'm a 
super good at both of those. That's a hell of a talent. Favorite city? Florence. Guilty pleasure? Madden football. Let's jump into the real stuff. All right. Netscape changed the world. It was the first commercially viable browser that opened up the internet to mere mortals. And of course, has been the foundation of what we have today. You were there at that moment. Contrast for us where we are today versus where you thought Netscape was going to take us. You know, so many of the things that we thought were going to happen did happen on the good and the bad side. So, you know, the world came online. People have the Library of Congress in their pocket. People have better access to information now, the average person with a, with a phone, than, you know, the president of the United States had in 1990. So it's like that has been amazing. Video worked, audio worked. Um, all the industries uh, kind of moved on to the Internet. We definitely thought all that would happen. Uh, and on the bad side, we did think there was going to be a lot of crime, although we did we thought we'd have a better chance at stopping it. There was a period where the entire industry just decided not to take security on the Internet seriously, and it started with a technology that Microsoft built called ActiveX, which you know everybody knew was going to be problematic, but you know it was competitive and they did it anyway and and whatnot. And then after that, I think we were really, really kind of just went away from the idea that we had to build things super safely online. And uh, that's led to what it has. Um, I definitely didn't anticipate all the implications of social media. And in particular, you know, what it meant for humanity. <laughs> uh, so because we had kind of versions of it, we had news groups, we had... Uh, IRC chat. We had things on the internet in the early days, and it didn't quite happen the way it happened uh, with Facebook and Twitter and and you know Instagram and these kinds of things. But I think that humanity is not really able to process everybody's opinion <laughs> simultaneously at the same level in a way that's quite spectacular. Did you anticipate that? Really, it was probably social, and more than anything else, would replace news experts uh, that we would sort of be looking to anyone who had a point of view as opposed to these anointed experts that we trusted? Oh, we really thought news was going to change. So Mark and Jim Clark went to see all the big media guys and say, hey, you know, you need to invest in Netscape because the internet's going to be a problem for you guys. You got to get in front of it. And they all basically laughed at them. Like none of them wanted to put by they were like, you guys are idiots. Like nobody's going to read news off a computer. What are you talking about? All that kind of thing. And I remember just us sitting there just being completely shocked that they would think that because we thought news was never going to be the same. You know, it had changed forever. And in fact, it would be more like, and, you know, Mark used to talk about the origination of newspapers in the United States, which was, you know, literally the founding fathers pseudonymously writing what we would call a blog post today. So they all had their own newspapers where they would write sometimes under their own name and sometimes under a, a pseudonym. And, you know, they would attack each other and write like very aggressive stuff and so forth. But everything was an opinion. There was no what we would call journalism in in that sense, you know, it, it, well, it was very opinionated, I would just say. Uh, and we thought that's what was going to happen. And in a lot of ways, you know, and, and particularly the blogging era was a lot of that. I think social media put it on steroids and the kind of idea that there would be no kind of set of facts that people agreed on. Also, by the way, I think we knew enough to know that kind of centrally controlled facts, you know, had been historically very wrong very many times. So, you know, we didn't think that was such a problem, although, you know, it's got other problems. So let me sort of continue on the society impact before we jump into some other issues. You know, when I was growing up, I left home at 18. I moved a thousand miles away. My parents had no idea uh, what was going on in the town I moved to because there was no way to get that information. Long distance phone calls were very expensive back then. Yep, and and they didn't work on Mother's Day. Exactly, and by exactly, I forgot about that. And and by the way, I called them about once a week, once every two weeks. I was able to mm -hmm. afford a trip home about every six months or so. And today, my college age kids can't escape me. 
It's like they're still living with me. Yeah. I know where they are. I know all the info about where they are living, their friends, what's been going on. Some would argue, yeah. and I'm going to give you two contrasting views here. Some would argue that we're denying our kids the chance to become their own independent adults. Others say, no, this is what life was like 150 years ago when families lived together <laughs> and created this tight community. It was more about family and common goals. So where do you come down on this? I actually think our era was probably better because there was something about, and you remember it, that that feeling that you're out there without a net. Um, you know, oh, when you yeah, went away from home, <laughs> like it was like, okay, you're going to get it done or you're just going to be hungry. There was no, I'm moving back in with mom. She definitely didn't have room in the house for me. And, you know, in, in my case, and my whole like wife and kids. So I think that feeling of there's only one way out, up and out, and you've got to get it done is very powerful because there's so many things in life that make you want to stop or make you want to quit or make you want to kind of not press forward. And I think that, you know, kind of the lack of that, you know, that kind of nest, that ever encompassing nest is tough to deal with for today's kids. And that one, like there's just that feeling that you can return home like your kids or my kids you know, they, they, it's almost like they have too many choices, you know, like, like you and I had, okay, whatever is going to make us money. That's what we were fucking doing. Like there was no, <laughs> okay, should I do this or that? Or I'm not sure what I want to do with my career. Like, yeah, we didn't have those thoughts. A lot of what you get out of those early experiences is that you just went hard and the things you learn by going hard at something and giving it everything you have, cause you have to, to survive. Like there's just tremendous value in that. Let's continue a little bit on the idea of kids. Let's go back in time to you as a kid. You were a product of life mm -hmm. in Berkeley, California in the 60s, 70s, yeah. and 80s. Can you paint a picture of yeah. that time and place that you grew up in that influenced you? I had a very weird childhood because, you know, my father was, you probably remember Ramparts Magazine, uh, which was kind of the magazine of the new left in the early 70s. He was the editor-in-chief. Um, and so he was super left, you know, basically a Marxist, uh, and, you know, and one of the things early, you know, when I was four or five, you know, six, seven, eight years old is he was, he was very involved in, uh, the Oakland chapter of the Black Panthers. And so like a lot of the people I met, the adults that I met when I was a kid were Panthers. And that had a very big influence on me, not politically at all, but just stylistically. You know, all the things that I end up, uh, you know, be it music or people ask me, like, Ben, why do you drink cognac? Nobody drinks that. I was like, that was what the Panthers drunk. You know, they would always talk about it, like they're going to have a yak. I was like, that sounds like the greatest thing ever. So, you know, that, that's kind of just where I ended up. But then, you know, my father's politics changed all the way uh, as I got to be a teenager. Um, and that just kind of caused me to go, okay, I should stay away from politics because nobody knows what's going on. But Berkeley was, uh, you know, very integrated place, which, you know, was a great benefit to me and that I kind of learned so many cultures growing up. It was just such a different place than every other place that I was in my life that it kind of forced me to learn how to adapt culturally you know, first to like the business world, <laughs> because I had no, no concept of what like a corporate culture would, would be like when I was a kid. Uh, you know, we were always yelling at each other because we were more a politics culture. And so, you know, all those things, you know, ended up being really valuable. You were this smart math kid. I know that. But I didn't know this. Yeah. You also played football. How did having a foot in, in, in both of those worlds help you? I mean, those seemed like pretty diametrically opposed. <laughs> It's funny, you know, like my, my ability was math, um, but I love football. And then, you know, because Berkeley was such a hippie town and, you know, communists hate football. I have no idea why, like what it is about football that doesn't go with communism. Like they're fine with basketball or gymnastics or, you know, other things, but they, they really hate football. Um, and, you know, coming from like a communist heritage, uh, you know, and being a teenager, 
I was like, anything communists hate, I'm for. And so I want, you know, football was great in that sense. And so, I, you know, like I just tried out for the team and uh, I made the team. And, you know, anybody who's played high school football, it's such an amazing bonding experience. You get so much of that really tight camaraderie. So you got football. Let's move to the other thing that was yeah. an influence. Hip hop clearly had a huge oh, yeah. impact on you. It developed, popped yeah. on the scene about the time you were growing up. Why and how mm -hmm. hip hop and why you and hip hop? It felt like a breakthrough. Like, okay, here's something brand new. Uh, you know, my parents don't know about this. Nobody knows what this is. I can imagine it'd be like, you know, if you grew up when rock and roll hit, it was that kind of feeling where, oh my God, this is, you know, such a different feeling. And then the other thing about it, you know, for me was, it was so aspirational. You know, you had these kids who, like, literally, they, they had so much nothing, they would, they would make songs about their sneakers <laughs> and their sweatsuits. Like, aspiration is a thing independent of what you have. And, you know, for me, it was such a great kind of motivation attitude. You know, like, you can make something from nothing. The whole culture of it had just tremendous appeal. And, you know, I, I, I got very into it. Now, you know, along the way, there was this crazy incident where a friend that I grew up with, who, you know, very, very close family friend, got shot and became blind. And he didn't speak for three months. He was so depressed um, from being his only 13-year-old kid. And nothing could kind of bring him out of it. Um, and I was in New York at the time, you know, in college. And I recorded, here's how you know, like naive I was, I would record the DJ Red Alert and Chuck Chill Out shows because I thought like they were so exciting and they were so aspirational that if I sent him these tapes from these shows that he would snap out of it. And sure enough, <laughs> like all he wanted to talk about was, you know, DJ Red Alert and Chuck Chill Out. <laughs> and so, you know, he and I, we started a rap band um, called the Blind and Deaf Crew, D-E-F. <laughs> so that, you know, I was hooked forever once that happened. Well, let's talk a little bit about that tug, because you, you did form this rap group, the Blind Deaf Crew, but you yeah. also worked one summer at Silicon Graphics, and you described it as yeah. a mind-blowing experience. I mean, those seem to be two opposite paths that you're going down. How did these different interests coexist with you, and how did they feed each other? Yeah, well, you know, Silicon Graphics was so exciting because these really, really smart people just created this company that made the Terminator. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was like out of nothing. And I was like, wow, like a new, you can just have an idea and do that. And that, you know, for me, that went perfectly with the hip hop idea of something from nothing. And like, if you believe in yourself and like, you can do anything um, and, you've got energy and creativity, then you can just go do it. Like, let's go build something. Let's go make something. Let's go change the world. Once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. It was just that, that that's what I had to do. So you did Columbia. You decide you're not going to be a hip hop star. You go get your master's at UCLA. You joined Silicon Graphics. I think briefly you were at Net Labs, then Lotus. And finally, yeah. fate takes you to Netscape at the birth of the internet for the masses. How did you get there? Well, it's funny because, you know, I had been at Silicon Graphics. You know how that is. You pay attention to the people you work with and, and the people who you knew were great. And Jim Clark, um, you know, had this new company, Netscape. And I immediately downloaded the product and looked at it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, everybody who saw the browser in those days who knew anything was like, holy shit, nothing's ever going to be the same. They put. They literally put an interface on the internet. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was just like, oh my god, this is definitely the thing. You were there when Netscape went public, and for people a lot younger than us, they don't remember this, but it was the thing. Arguably, it was the original internet IPO. I think something every tech company after that time wanted to follow. Certainly, everybody was yeah. talking about it, whether they were in tech or not. How did it feel on the inside? Did you realize you were making history and having that kind of impact? 
it was it was really exciting in Silicon Valley. If you went to the movie theater and you had a Netscape shirt on, like it was almost like you were like a, a rock star, rap star, or something. You had people would go, "Whoa, you work at Netscape? That's crazy!" Everybody knew that we were at the center of the universe, and so there was tremendous excitement. And then just the feeling. You know, we would run into these problems. So, you know, the first thing that we ran into was, oh, the Internet will never work. It's not secure. I mean, you know, Bill Gates and Larry Ellison were like, oh, you guys are, you know, it's, it's, it's not a secure network. It can never be used for commerce. You can't put security into a protocol after the fact, all this kind of stuff. And literally in three weeks, we came out with SSL and we secured the whole Internet. <laughs> and we needed state and we invented cookies and we needed a scripting language and we invented JavaScript. You know, so it, it was tremendously exciting. And then, of course, as you know, when you get really popular, um, the next thing that happens is everybody wants to take you down. Yeah. <laughs> and so we went through that whole cycle, too, which was a great learning experience, although quite unpleasant. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Now let's hear more from my conversation with Ben Horowitz. What lesson from that early days of Netscape do you still use today and that you offer to your entrepreneurs? I try and take mostly the positive lessons. I think that, you, you know, we made many mistakes, of course, when you have the tiger by the tail like that and it's going so fast. But, you know, some of the positive things were like, you know, when you're a leader of an industry, you got to make the industry. You know, you, it's not just enough to make the company. You've got to make the industry work. And and we really had that attitude. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I talked to the guys at Coinbase about this a lot. If there's something missing in the crypto infrastructure, like you got to build it. Don't wait for it. Go do it. And then from a, a marketing standpoint, you know, really just acting like, you know, walking the talk, you know, or talking the walk, so, so to speak, of, uh, of going, look, we're building the Internet. That's what we're here to do. We're number one and we're going to market the industry and we're going to push it ahead. And those, those things I use all the time. I mean, you know, at Andreessen Horowitz, if we want to change venture capital, then we change venture capital. That's our thing. We don't wait and try and rally all our friends or do this. We just, we make the change. Well, along that way, you know, I was at AOL at that time, and we we were on a similar mission of let's make the internet usable by mere mortals. And yes. in 1998, uh, we bought Netscape. Mark became our CTO. You ran the e-commerce platform. But it was a yeah. it was a, an East Coast meets West Coast. I remember all the hand wringing <laughs> we had yeah, about Tupac it. versus Biggie. Oh, it was like you know in in Dulles, Virginia, the AOL engineers yeah. had offices, and they said it was impossible yeah. to do their work without them. Yet Netscape just had an open cubicle for everybody, including the CEO. And when Steve Case yeah. and I flew out the, to meet everyone and do the town hall meeting, the first one, the first question was, I don't know if you remember this. Can we still bring our dogs into work? Um, and I think that sort of exemplified the cultural difference. Yeah. So what lessons did you learn? You talked about, you know, you usually take the pauses, but, you know, we learn a lot from mistakes. What did you learn from that mismatch of cultures? Yeah, so, you know, I wrote a whole book on culture called What, <laughs> what You Do Is Who You Are with some of those lessons in mind. You know, culture is very subtle and nuanced in the sense that you always have a main culture and then you have subcultures there. You know, it's never uniform across everything, but you have to, as an organization, be like very clear in your head. Okay. What parts of the culture are essential to our competitive advantage and make sure that you assimilate people into those things. And then the other things, you know, you can let be different, but you've got to mitigate it. Um, you know, that's the, the basic role. But then, you know, when you get into the East Coast, West Coast thing, you have this weird issue where people get constantly offended by the other side's behavior. Um, and I think in that case, it was more the West Coast getting offended by the East Coast. Uh, and it's a bigger thing than it should be because the, the meaning of what people say is different. You know, like if somebody on the East Coast says, why the fuck are you doing that? It doesn't mean anything then like explain it to me. Um, whereas on the West Coast, that might mean like, OK, this guy hates me and is out to get me. Fuck him. <laughs> like that's a bad miscommunication. And you do have to think about, OK, who are the you know, who, who are the cross cultural people who can deal with that, who can be in in those spots and 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 really make that work? Talk about that, and, and I think you've hit it exactly. I mean, my view of that, it was miserable because of the culture clash. Uh, people sort of forget yeah. that the financial performance of AL Time Warner far exceeded that of its rivals. It was actually, as a company, really yeah. performing, but everyone was so unhappy, and that became the headline and, and ultimately drove the stock price down in spite of superior earnings. So you're, you're right, culture yeah. wins and culture will... Uh, both win and defeat, depending on which way you go. Yeah. When you evaluate companies, 
Where does the examination of corporate culture fit into that? When we invest, we usually invest pretty early. So, you know, we're usually at the point where we're trying to help them shape it. Because as you know, like, I think there's this myth among, you know, kind of certain HR consultants that you kind of write down your culture when you're five people and then that's your culture. Like, that's not at all how it works, right? Right. So it's kind of this thing where it takes you a while to figure out, okay, so in our industry, you know, these are the things that are going to matter. Is it, you know, is it creativity or responsiveness or um, frugality or whatever the, you know, whatever the elements are that you've got to have to win? And then, you know, how do you program that into the organization? So I think we spend kind of more time helping people figure out who they are and then, you know, try and set enough mechanisms into place in how they run the organization so that when new people come on, they assimilate in rather than kind of pulling people their way. Because what happens a lot in Silicon Valley is, okay, I've got a company and then I go, oh, you know, Google's got some great engineers that are unhappy, so I'm going to hire 20 of them. Well, all of a sudden now your culture is Google's culture. <laughs> and it's more that kind of thing than than I would say trying to evaluate who they are because, you know, it's developing. You, you and Mark, culture or something, caused you to leave and you started one of the pioneers of the cloud, Loud Cloud, and that sort of morphed into mm -hmm. Opsware, which you eventually sold to HP. Uh, you and Mark started Andreessen Horowitz in 2009. Why VC instead of starting or running another company? Yeah, well, you know, we, uh, <laughs> we were weirdly very passionate about the idea of changing how venture capital worked. And I'm not sure why he was so keyed up about it, but I was definitely keyed up about it. And a lot of it just had to do with our experience, um, you know, a little bit of, at both Netscape and Opsware. You know, the, the VC model was, uh, and they talk about it, oh, it's a cottage industry, it's an apprentice model, it's, you know, a few craftspeople who know how companies get built and we're going to tell you how to do it and we're likely to replace the CEO with somebody who knows how to scale. And that was kind of how it worked. And we're like, wow, this is just dumb. <laughs> Some of these VCs were great, like super massively talented, very smart people who we work with. But you know, we're like, well, why is the model to replace the CEO when all the best tech companies historically, Hewlett Packard, IBM, Microsoft, you know, Amazon, we're all run by their founders for a very long time. Like, why is that the model? That didn't make sense. You know, in our experience, and, and you know this, like, <laughs> you know, when you start a company, you're the one who makes all the mistakes. So it's easier for you to change them to get it right, right? Uh, so, so we thought, you know, there ought to be a model for that. And then we thought, like, well, why is it so hard for a founder to build a company? And there was really two things. You know, one is, like, look, the CEO skill set is really hard. It's not something that people are born, okay, I know how to manage a thousand people. That that takes practice. And then the other thing was just a network. You know, you look at somebody like Bob Iger and you go, oh, wow, that guy can call anybody. And we thought, well, like, you could do that. You could build that network, you know, as part of the firm, if you had a great venture capital firm, and then enable kind of every entrepreneur to have a network like Bob Iger's where they could, you know, get to anybody. Like, how great would that be? And then help that founder develop into a CEO. And so we thought, wow, if we built that, you know, Silicon Valley would be able to build much better, much bigger companies. And, you know, we both got super excited about it. So that's what we ended up doing. Does hip hop inform anything you do today in venture capital? I think it informs the feeling of what it means to kind of build something, compete, run an organization. There are so many great insights in the music over the years. Um, and, you know, of course I, you know, whenever I write anything, I incorporate that in, but so many of my ideas about like, how do you convey the emotion of something to a CEO? Um, because as you know, like the actual mechanics of management, the theory of it is not that complicated, but like having the right feeling to be able to do it is something that very few people can do uh, because you're going to make people unhappy. You know, people are going to quit. Like every important decision you make, people, like some people in the organization are going to absolutely fucking hate. 
And so how do you how do you get your head around that? The rap quote that I use is Rick Ross, which is who the fuck you think you're fucking with? I'm the fucking boss. <laughs> and that's like, that's the emotional side of it. Like, stop fucking with me. Like, no. <laughs> Let's jump a little bit to business, helping to make a better world. What, what's your philosophy on that? Yeah. So look, I think that's kind of the purpose of starting a new business. I do think, you know, there's a different question when businesses get really old <laughs> and you're kind of protecting what's already built. But for new businesses, every new business, the idea is always to make something in the world better. You know, can we build a better way of paying for things? Can we build a better way of taking a vacation? You know, can we build a better way of getting from point A to point B? Like, that's always the idea. So, you know, I'm, I couldn't be more positive on people starting companies. And, you know, it's funny, I got a, I got a question from somebody in the press the other day, and they said, Ben, you know, like, aren't you upset that, you know, you, you know, venture capital is getting ruined by these high prices? And I said, well, I said, hold on, you know, so too many high prices, too many things getting funded. They're like, yeah, too many things getting funded, you know, even things that shouldn't be funded. I'm like, well, so you're against the transfer of wealth from like people with too much money to people trying to build something new? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? That's the greatest idea ever. That's perfect. So I think, look, you know, I, I wish there was money for everybody who ever had an idea to make the world a better place to go give it a shot. One of the greatest things about America is that it's pretty easy to do that compared to other places in the world. Look, you don't always know what all the implications of what you built is going to be. When Zuck started Facebook, it was like a hot or not type of idea in the beginning. You know, how college kids can meet each other, that kind of thing. So, you know, how it gets from there to there. Like, things do happen. And, you know, as the population grows, we need better ways of doing things or we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. And what advice do you give your companies on the topic? Do you sort of help them write that into their charter, if you will? Well, the original idea is always like, ah, this is broken. Like we can make this so much better. And so usually that's there. I mean, I want to take credit for that. I do spend a lot of time with CEOs going, look, you know, at the end of the day, when this is over, like the most important thing is the impact you make. Like, what is it like to work here? What is it like for the people who buy the product? What is it like for the people you partner with? Like, what is the impact that you make on this world. That's all that's going to matter. That's the only thing you're going to remember. So just make sure you do that the way you want to, because when you're running a business, there's pressure to do all kinds of stuff just because, you know, you got to, in order to continue the, the endeavor, you've got to at some point make money. But, you know, I do think that we don't see people in Silicon Valley starting businesses to, you know, to do the things that you see in movies. Right. Right. People aren't like just trying to get rich. They're, they're usually, they have some idea that, that they're inspired about for some reason. Let me get some of your quick takes on some current topics. Return to office. What's the future of the workplace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so look, I think it's going to be different. We learned a lot during COVID. We didn't learn nothing. <laughs> we learned a lot. And we learned, you know, in particular, you know, some things work really well on Zoom and Slack and, and all the tool sets. And look, we also learned some things don't work well. It is hard, like culture is more complicated by a lot, I think, remotely and creative work is much more difficult. And there's a bunch of things that I think you're going to want to be in person on. But there's a lot of things, you know, to, to, to make everybody go to the office and then like be on email and Slack, <laughs> not talking to each other <laughs> is stupid. Right. You know, and, you know, look, I'm a CEO. <laughs> I live eight minutes from the office, but, you know, nobody on my team does. Right. You know, they're commuting an hour or two hours. Uh, they've got kids. I don't need to make them do that every single day. I think we're just going to end up being a lot more thoughtful about when we get together and when we're remote. One of the things that really struck me is we had a couple of offsites during COVID, you know, outside when, you know, we thought we, we weren't too nervous. And those offsites were so much better than anything we'd ever done pre-COVID because pre-COVID, you know, the 
we had too much agenda and people were distracted on their devices and this and that and the other. And then during COVID, I'm like, I, I, you know, very little agenda. Let's just talk to each other. Let's just, you know, kind of have ideas. Let's get to know each other. And man, that was great. And, and we got so much out of that and so much better ideas than I ever got at my regular offsite. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, quite a thing. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in 160 locations around the country. We've talked about how do you think about an office, and we've come up with the office is a productivity tool. If it can help you be more productive, use it. If it can't, don't use it. It's all about productivity. Yeah. <laughs> it's not prison. You're not being sentenced to the office. Yeah, that's a very good, <laughs> that's a great metaphor. Talk about podcasting for a minute. We're on a podcast right now. Um, and uh, does this medium continue on this growth trajectory? Does this eventually reach as many people as radio, which, by the way, now has the greatest weekly reach of any media in the U.S.? Is that where we're heading with podcasting? Does it stop at all? I think that audio broadcasting is 100% a big deal and going to be around forever. It's amazing and you know, conversations are things that people really value, you know, particularly in the age of social media, where, which is not a great medium for conversations, right? Like it's great for attacking each other or sharing little things, um, but it's not good for something like this. And so I think that, you know, music and conversations are going to be around, there's no question. And then how you get them, you know, will change technologically. Streaming video services. You know, I was in the cable business when the great invention was we aggregated all these services together and sold you a bundle. Then it went to a la carte. And, boy, these streaming services are a la carte on steroids. Are we going to go back? Is the consumer beginning to look for something aggregated in one place as opposed to having to go from one service to another service to another service? What do you think the future holds? The value propositions of... Netflix and Amazon and Disney are so overwhelming that it's going to be pretty hard. These smaller services is just, you know, a relic of history. There will be like some set of entertainment choices, but they'll all be, you know, you pay $14.99 a month or whatever, and you get just an amazing amount of stuff would be my guess. Buying one show at a time that you like on one channel, I, I think is pretty unlikely. Talk a little bit about, quick take, on bio-investing. Tech's been super hot. You know, mm -hmm. The bio's looking pretty hot, too. How do you think about it? Yeah, so bio has gone through this tremendous breakthrough um, in a change in the way we model biology. When you and I were kids, we had this chemistry model of the human body, and, you know, that took you to a certain place, but now we've got an information model, you know, kind of based on the genome, the microbiome, the epigenome. And so if you have an information model of the human body, then you can apply computer science techniques to it. And you can apply AI to it. And that opens up a world that is absolutely completely different. The example that everybody is so grateful for on that is the mRNA vaccine. So right in the old days, <laughs> to make a vaccine, we would try and conjure up like some small amount of the disease. Uh, we would manufacture it by like growing it in a chicken egg, and then we'd inject you with it and hope you didn't get too sick. With the mRNA vaccine, like we print a message. <laughs> we manufacture it by printing a message that we send to your cell that says, hey, build up this protein to defend against this virus. And then that message is gone in two weeks. And all you have is what your body produced. And they're amazingly effective. That difference in precision, like we call it drug discovery. Like imagine you did bridge discovery to figure out how to build a bridge, right? You build a thousand bridges, the one that didn't collapse, that's it. That's how we do drug you know, discovery. Now we can do drug engineering. We can do so much more. It's just tremendously exciting. One of the things that, that we think about a lot is, you know, back <laughs> when you and I grew up, like we used to get lost, right? Like you would 
have to call somebody, hey, I'm at this phone booth. I don't know how to get to your house. It's dark. I don't, where am I? That, you, you never do that anymore. <laughs> like you have a GPS, you know where you are at all times. 10 years from now, like we're not going to wonder why we're sick. We're going to know why we're sick every single time because we're going to be able to sequence our blood, our microbiome. We're going to have so many signals. And then we're going to have AI, which can look at thousands of dimensions and inputs very easily, match us against everybody who's ever been sick and say, okay, this is what you've got. As opposed to like a human being, you know, listening to your heart, taking your blood pressure and trying to figure it out, who can only think in three dimensions. It's really just an amazing time in biology right now. If you could go back in time and give some advice to your 21-year-old self, what would that advice be? It would probably be, you know, don't worry so much because it's going to turn out okay. Because <laughs> uh, I used to worry about everything. But then I, I, I wonder if I told myself not to worry, would it turn out okay? Maybe the worry is what got me there. I always love that line, if I'd known I was going to be successful, I wouldn't have worked so hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we always end each Math & Magic episode with a shout out to the greatest on the two sides of marketing and business. It's what the podcast is about, math and magic, the analytical view, the math, and the creativity, those people just just burst out of them, the magic. As you think about, and boy, you know a lot of them, who would you give the shout out to on the math side and who would you give it to on the magic side? On the creative side, uh, you know, I'm going to give it to uh, a friend of mine, uh, Shaka Senghor, who's got a, a new book coming out. You know, he... He spent 19 years in prison and seven in solitary confinement for a murder that he did commit when he was 19 years old. And he transformed his life. I still can't understand how he did it, but, you know, he's come out and he's, you know, just become this, like, amazingly successful writer and so forth. But he's got this new book called Letters to the Sons of Society about his two sons, one... Uh, which he had as, right as he went into prison and who he couldn't really raise because he was behind bars. And then another who he had when he came out. And they've had completely different paths, as you would expect. And him trying to reconcile that, I always think of the, the hardest thing about being a creative is getting all the way to the truth, um, particularly when the truth is filled with pain. And he's gone through so much pain to get to the truth. It's just amazing. And on the, on the math side, I am going to give it to Jeff Bezos uh, because where would we be without Amazon during the pandemic? I mean, like, how miserable would that be without, like, the greatest logistics company ever built right in our own country, giving us every single thing we needed delivered to our house through everything that went wrong all the time, and by the way, keeping our entire computing infrastructure up and running. I mean, it's like, what an amazing feat of accomplishment there. Ben, you have made a huge impact on business and society. You've seen things no one else has seen. I'm sure you got a lot more to see, uh, and you're giving us good lessons as you go. Thanks for sharing with us today. Yeah, absolutely. It's great catching up, Bob. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Ben. One, when you lead an innovative company, you aren't just leading the company, but the industry itself. When Ben was at Netscape, he and his team would run into challenges where the only way to keep building was to invent a new tool. Don't wait for problems to be solved by others. Instead, be the solution. Two, the founder of a company is often the best person to chart the path forward. Traditional venture capitalists often replace a company's founder with a seasoned CEO who appears more prepared to scale the company. Ben believes it's better to support the founder, to develop their skills, and provide them with a network of support. Three, the best entrepreneurs are driven by more than just the bottom line. Ben said that most of the founders he knows are passionate about identifying problems and building innovative fixes for them. According to Ben, that kind of thinking is one of the ways businesses can help make the world better. Four, company culture doesn't need to be rigid. Instead, you should identify and then hold on to the elements of your company culture that add to your competitive advantage. Beyond that, it's okay if different departments, different offices, or perhaps even different coasts do things slightly differently.
I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editor, Derek Clements. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Rahul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.